Amen. Please be seated. Well, the title of our sermon this morning is The Joy of Christ's Righteousness. And I have the privilege and the honor to, to preach from Philippians chapter 3. Though I confess, and you should know, that two weeks, because there will be two weeks of chapter 3, this and, and the next, you should know that that's not nearly enough. This chapter, perhaps all chapters in the Bible, would should take four or eight. But I hope to do it some some justice by drawing out the truth that God has here for us. In the first half of the 16th century, Martin Luther said, The epistle to the Galatians is my epistle. To it I am, as it were, in wedlock. And 20 years ago at Hume Lake, Philippians became my epistle. And I heard the teacher there teach on three passions of the Apostle Paul. From Colossians 1.28, he said to Paul wanted to proclaim Christ boldly. In Romans 1.16, he wanted to reflect Christ clearly. And in Philippians 3.10, to know Christ intimately. And since that time, Philippians has continued to have a, a significant impact on my life. And chapter 3 in, in particular. So as I said, we'll spend two Sundays working our way through Philippians 3. Though I know it won't be enough. But I hope that this epistle of joy will come alive in your heart. In the way it has in mind and encourage you to live by Paul's refrain there to, to know Christ intimately. Let's pray before we begin. Father, be with us this morning as we seek to know you more intimately. Teach us in your word. Be with us and open the eyes of our heart. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And so with every Pauline epistle, we want to start with an introduction in Acts. Acts is going to provide a historical framework. It's going to give some background to Paul's personal correspondence here in this letter. And it also gives us a proper chronology. In fact, it puts us right in the footsteps of the Apostle Paul as, as we see him traveling and writing around the Mediterranean. And so Paul first establishes this Philippian church on the second missionary journey in Acts 16, probably AD 50, 52. After the Jerusalem Council, which I'm going to mention here in a, in a minute. And there's a few noteworthy points for context here. Again, Paul is in Philippians in, in Acts 16, second missionary journey. Uh, Philippi is the city. It's, the, it's a Roman colony and so had special privileges, the right of citizenship for those that live there. It's the first church in Europe, in fact. Remember the man from Macedonia calling out to Paul and Paul crossed crossed the ocean, and so established the first church in Europe. Philippi was named after Alexander the Great's father, Philip of Macedon. And also of note is that Luke joins the mission here with Paul in Acts 16, and he begins to use that first person pronoun, we. So we know that Luke is an eyewitness at this point. 
Acts chapter 16 includes, I think, some really uh, familiar themes and, and stories. Think of Lydia and her household who were baptized in the river. Think of how Paul cast out the demon and the slave girl, and the result of that is Silas and, and Paul getting beaten with rods and, and thrown in jail. Think of the Philippian jailer who survived the earthquake and nearly committed suicide, who had listened to Paul and Silas sing hymns and spiritual songs, but then the prison doors were unlocked and the bonds of those prisoners were unfastened and he, he cries out, right? what, what must I do to be saved? And you all know the response, right? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Paul wrote Philippians about 12 years after his first visit there. So if he, if he visited in 50 or 52, he, he wrote from prison during his first Roman imprisonment between 60 and, and 62, probably. Philippians is also numbered with three other letters that typically combine together called the prison epistles. So it's Philippians Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon that he wrote from his first prison, first imprisonment. And these recipients, these Philippians, others, uh, obviously we know Lydia and the uh, Roman soldier, but the recipients of the letter formed really a thriving church in Macedonia. And he refers to this church in other places, including in this letter, saying that it was the only church they gave to Paul in his early days, and they gave abundantly to his missionary work. So let's read now Philippians chapter 3, 1 through 7. It's a difficult place to break this up here over two weeks. But I'm going to stop at 7 and we'll take the rest of the chapter next week. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. We're going to work through this passage here verse by verse, and we're going to take plenty of time this morning, I think. When Pastor Mills isn't here, of course, we don't do the Lord's Supper. So I, I didn't really even look at the time as I put this together. So uh, let's see if we can we can end before uh, Oak Hills comes up here. Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. As I said, Philippians is the epistle of joy. Many references to rejoice and, and, and joy. And here again, he says, rejoice in the Lord. If you notice in Philippians 4.4, 4, Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. 
like he's hitting on his breast. Rejoice with an exclamation point. Or in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. And so in, in chapter 2, verse 18, he says that he rejoices. He rejoices. But now it's clear here in whom he rejoices. If it wasn't earlier, he makes it abundantly clear. We rejoice and Paul rejoices because we are in Christ. We are found in Him. Our eternity, Christians, has been settled. It has been said that joy is the flag that flies on the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. Joy. Joy is a primary characteristic. It's a fruit, isn't it? Of the Christian faith. Of a, of a Christian. For a Christian. Christ has given us rest and a holy peace and we rejoice in His work and in our position in Him and our union with Him. We must rejoice because of the great theological truth of our union with Christ. And this, as he says in Thessalonians, despite our circumstances. Let me give you two examples of this. In Philippians 1.12, if you just want to turn there, I'll have you going to a number of places this morning. Where Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Paul, being in prison and being locked up for his faith, has served to advance the gospel. Or think of Genesis 50, that familiar passage of Joseph being sent off to Egypt by his brothers. Sent off, just putting it nicely. And he also goes to prison. But then he's released and he becomes something of a prince of Egypt. And he says to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. So this joy we have in Christ is despite our circumstances. Now, that was two biblical examples. Let me give you two points from that. John Stott writes that there is an indestructibility to Christian joy. An indestructibility. That's because our joy is in Christ. And some have said, and I'm sure you've heard, that happiness is, depends on our happenings or happenstance. But joy is found in Christ despite our circumstances. So our joy is indestructible in Christ. Uh, secondly, we must always remember that in our Christian practice, joy is lived out. And it's lived out by making sure that we put Jesus first and then other, others and then you. So J-O-Y, Jesus, others, and you. But in this first verse here, he adds a second clause. So he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So Paul here is doing a couple of things. First, he's reminding his readers to remember the basics, to remember the essentials. And as we mentioned in Sunday school today, churches get it wrong when they, when they implement methods. It means that neglect or disregard the essential story. The simple, clear gospel. 
Secondly, if you've read anything about learning theory, then you under, understand a, a different aspect of this phrase. Think, think of this. For information to move from short-term memory to long-term memory, what is, what is necessary? Okay. Rep- repetition and rehearsal, it's called in educational psychology. Right? Review again and again and again. So for, to get information to stick, you need to review or practice, don't you? Again. And again, and again. So one, Paul never tires of the simple gospel. He never tires of the great truths found in Scripture. And in in one way, this is a call for us to go back to the basics, the essentials, the simple gospel. And second, it's also to study in a way that allows for maximum retention. So we need to go back to this again, and again, and again. Repetition, Christian meditation, and thus memorization of the simple gospel. And one important reason in this context for returning to the simple gospel again and again and again is that it protects against the attacks of the enemies of the cross of Christ. You want a solid defense? Go back to the gospel. Not only is the simple gospel important to repeat, in fact, Paul says it's safe to do so. Why does he say it that way? He answers here in verse 2 and following. He's referencing his opponents who will come to find are the Judaizers of Acts 15 and Galatians. And he lists three descriptions of them, three descriptors of these adversaries. Look at verse 2. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So we're going to analyze these and examine these in, in great detail, but let me give you a couple introductory points. I think to every verse I have an introduction. I don't know why that happened. First, notice that he says, look out three times. We need to remain vigilant. We need to not stop looking. We need to be on the, the wall, watching out for the adversaries as they come. We should literally heed the charge to look out and stay vigilant. Secondly, these dogs that he's referring to here, these mutilators, these evil workers, these are not believers. I'll make this point again in greater detail. But if you go back to chapter 1, verse 27, and you'll notice he's talking about striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And there's some folks in that first chapter that Paul's referring to that seem to be preaching out of envy. Yet they were still striving together for the faith of the gospel. He, those are not the opponents in chapter 1. These are the opponents, the unbelievers in chapter 3. So they preached an orthodox gospel in chapter 1. And they're preaching a false gospel here in chapter 3. Not the same people, two distinct groups to the point I'm making. Here Paul is describing false believers. So one, be, be vigilant. And two, we're, be, let's, we need to be very clear that these are false believers here. So... The first description then is look out for the dogs. 
You ever called anybody that? Dogs, of course, in the first century Jewish culture were dirty scavengers, wretched creatures. They, they didn't call them Fido. They didn't, they didn't invite them in the house. And Jews also referred to Gentiles as dogs. They were outside of God's covenant community. So they were not of God's covenant signed people. They were not of the true circumcision. They weren't true believers in Christ, these dogs. And note that circumcision literally means to cut around. And Paul uses this term mutilate, which means to cut off. Paul's not mincing words. We thought Martin Luther was a little rough around the edges. Paul is very strong here. Paul's not simply talking about physical parts, at least not only, but he's speaking of these Judaizers, these dogs, advocating another gospel, advancing another gospel, and thus they should be, as he says in Galatians, anathema. Let's look, in fact, at Acts 15, if you'll turn there. Acts 15, I'm going to read verse 1 and verse 5. This is the Jerusalem Council. Paul and uh, Luke writes, But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Again in verse 5, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So these Judaizers taught that circumcision, the physical act, the sign, the covenant sign equates to salvation. That somehow it can merit salvation. Even further, that one must be a Jew, in fact, to be a Christian. That obedience, whether it's to get in or obedience to stay in, is what gets you saved or keeps you saved. Now, church, if anyone says that an outward act or any action of man, no matter how tied it is to historic truth, no matter how closely connected it is to the covenants and promises of God, if somehow any outward act or any action of man can earn the favor of God, then we ought to respond in the manner that Paul responded to the Philippians and to the Galatians. Now, I know that's not what you hear from many pulpits, but isn't that what we see in God's Word? about God's truth. Paul's direct response to the Judaizers is expressed in the letter to the Galatians. Again, maybe maybe no wonder Martin Luther loved this letter. He wrote it again right on the eve of the Jerusalem Council, probably in AD 49. Again, putting all these timelines together, maybe 10, 10 years or so, prior to writing this letter of Philippians. And these Judaizers are still around, wreaking havoc. Galatians is a polemic against the false gospel of the Judaizers. And I'm going to read just from a 
portion of Galatians 1, 6 through 9. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed or anathema or damned is what that word means. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. Paul is saying in Galatians and here in in Philippians, if cutting around is spiritually beneficial to salvation, then why not cut everything off? Mutilate yourself. If somehow your outward work can merit anything before Almighty and Holy God. So let's 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 pull the covers back here and just think about this. If our if our obedience to the law is the metric and our righteousness must exceed that of the Pharisees, we have no hope. We will, we will by no means enter into heaven. You know, our, our Lord and Savior had plenty to say on this very topic. Speaking to the false religious teachers who, who twisted Scripture, he says this, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. So we can see where Paul gets his strong words from and Luther and Ray Sanchez, I guess. (laughs) Church, these dogs and mutilators of the flesh, these Judaizers, they were mutilating the gospel. And yet they were professing Christians. This is whom Jesus reserved his strongest criticism for. Not those outside saying many things. They, they can be criticized. We ought to engage with those. But those that are somewhat on the inside are twisting the truth of the Word of God. They need to be directly engaged. They were, they were mutilating the Gospel. People today are mutilating the Gospel. And they were professing to be Christians while doing so. These dogs and these evil doers and mutilators this is this is the natural fruit of the Pharisees. Think of this. Think of Charles Finney. That's a word we don't talk about. A person we don't talk about much from the pulpit. Uh, Charles Finney's revivalism and false teaching really was the antecedent to much of modern liberal Christianity and many of the cults that we see around today. They're the fruit of Finney. As the Judaizers were the fruit 
of the Pharisees. So Paul gives, again, three descriptors of false believers. He calls them dogs, dirty, wretched scavengers. He calls them evil doers. So they had this moralistic, rules-based religion. And it was actually working evil, though they thought they were working righteousness. He calls them the mutilation. They mutilate the flesh. So their outward circumcision yielded nothing eternal. It was only a cutting of the flesh. It was only an outward work. Listen to Paul in Romans chapter 2. He says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. So in contrast to these three descriptors of these false believers, these Judaizers, listen to what Paul says in verse 3. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. He gives three descriptors of the false believers and then three descriptors or marks of true believers. True believers who have circumcised hearts. He says that they worship by the Spirit of God, they glory in Christ Jesus, and they put no confidence in the flesh. Now let's take each of these marks one at a time. First, we worship by the Spirit of God. And you remember when Jesus, when Nicodemus visits Jesus in the middle of the night, he says, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And Jesus in that passage there, that extended passage, said that the location is not what's relevant. As he said to the woman at the well, it's not, it's not which mountain you're on. But it's the truth or the orthodox doctrine that's essential. Worshipping by the Spirit of God, or, or some translations may say, in the Spirit of God. It's not going through external motions right, to please God, to merit something from God. It is worshipping with transformed hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a mark of a true Christian. A second mark is that true believers glory in Christ Jesus. That is, we boast in the cross. We acknowledge, as the hymn states, that Jesus paid it all. Now these Judaizers, these false believers, mutilators, evil workers, and dogs, they boasted. They certainly boasted. They placed their confidence and trust in their own ability. They boasted in themselves. The Christians put their trust in Christ and Christ alone. And this is how Paul can say in Philippians 1, he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. His whole identity was wrapped up in Christ. Christ is all and all to the Apostle Paul and should be to all true disciples. It should be Christ 
that we glorify. Thirdly, true believers put no confidence in the flesh. So it's, it's, he's digging deeper and deeper, isn't he? They worship, they glory, they put no confidence in the flesh. In Scripture, flesh has many different meanings. But here Paul is saying that, that we have no confidence in anything man can do that could possibly merit salvation. We know Jeremiah 17.9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick or desperately wicked. Now, aren't you, aren't you encouraged to hear that? That you have a wicked heart? I mean, really, because that means it's dependent upon Christ and not yourself. Your eternal destiny does not depend on your earthly strivings. Contrary to those religious systems and dogmas, those mentioned the cults earlier, any religious system, our confidence rests 0% on ourselves and 100% on Christ. Here then is a picture of a follower of Christ offering true worship, giving glory to Christ alone and putting no confidence in the flesh. True worship by the Spirit of God. Giving glory to Christ Jesus alone and putting no confidence in the flesh. But, but you know, Paul adds something here. He says, you know, if there, if there ever was a person that had any reason to put confidence in the flesh, that would be, that would be me. So Paul gives us something of a spiritual biography here to make his case against these mutilators and evil workers. He provides a picture for us of his former life. He gives us a list of everything that he would have put in the prophet column. Of things that he could have said, yeah, this, this profits me. These things are, I'm confident in these fleshly activities of mine. And we see this in verses 4 through 6. He cites his pedigree, his achievements, his accolades, his accomplishments, and his works. And he puts them in two categories. Those that can be traced to his birth or his bloodline or his DNA. And those that can be traced to his own self-effort as an adult. And the first three speak to the position his parents put him in. First of all, he says that he was circumcised on the eighth day. Of course, we know this was commanded to Abraham by God in Genesis 17, later in Leviticus 12. So we see here, and Paul's point is that he's, he's saying that he's a true child of Abraham with faithful and devout parents. And then he says, beyond that, he says he's an Israelite. So not only was he circumcised on the eighth day, but he's of the people of Israel. He's a true Israelite. Israel, of course, was the name given to Jacob, Genesis 32. 
And I think John's thought really puts it uh, succinctly, and I'm going to read this short paragraph to you, on the importance on why Christ mentions that he's an Israelite. The importance of stating this. Stott writes this, It was to Israel that the Jews in the most special sense traced their heritage. In point of fact, the Ishmaelites could trace their descent to Abraham. For Ishmael was Abraham's son by Hagar. The Edomites could trace their descent to Isaac. For Esau, the founder of the Edomite nation, was Isaac's son. But it was the Israelites alone who could trace their descent to Jacob, whom God had called by the name of Israel. And so by calling himself an Israelite, Paul stresses the absolute purity of his descent. That sounds like a lot of confidence in the flesh, doesn't it? But he adds more. He says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Not only did Paul have a godly and faithful upbringing as a child, not only was Paul descended from Jacob, so he was a true Israelite, he was also of this elite tribe of all Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. Remember, it was Benjamin who remained faithful to the tribe of Judah and thus became called Judah, the southern kingdom, when it divided. It was from the tribe of Benjamin from which the first king of Israel had come. And then Paul transitions from his privileges and his position by birth to his own personal accomplishments. Think of this. He's making a very strong case here. My parents were faithful. I'm an Israelite, a true Israelite. And I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. But that's not enough. I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. And the distinction here between him saying he's a true Israelite and a Hebrew of Hebrew is that Paul was raised in what's called the dispersion. The Jews had been spread out around the Mediterranean. And he, he was born in a city of, the city of Tarsus. Which if you could picture the Mediterranean, it was sort of north and slightly west of Antioch. And Antioch is north of Jerusalem, right around the Mediterranean. Antioch, by the way, was the third largest city in all of the Roman world. It's a huge, huge city, ancient city. But Paul was born in Tarsus. And if you remember from Acts 6 and elsewhere, there was this divide in the early New Testament church between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. The Hebrews were culturally Jewish or Hebrew and probably spoke Aramaic and Hebrew. But it was the Hellenists in the church who had this conflict because they didn't seem like they were getting enough of the share. Why were they called Hellenists? It's because they were Greek-speaking Jews and Likely, they took on a lot of Greek-like culture, perhaps the dress. Paul is saying, I am a Hebrew of Hebrews. Though he was born in Tarsus, and though he had some sort of international flavor, he spoke Hebrew, as we know. We see this in later parts of Acts. 
and he proudly lived out his Jewish culture. So he did not just claim his rich heritage from his parents, but he lived it out. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He was even educated by Gamaliel, who was one of the greatest Jewish legal scholars, but more than a Hebrew by culture and language. Paul was a Pharisee by training, and by doctrine. So it wasn't just his culture that he wanted to cite. It was that he had some very specific kinds of training and beliefs. As I said, Paul trained under Gamaliel in the doctrines and practices of the Pharisees. And as I've understood it, there were probably about 6,000 Pharisees at the time of Jesus. A fairly small number, I suppose. They weren't the only sect at the time, but they were the most beloved, believe it or not, by most of the Jewish people. The most respected. The most esteemed. They were experts in Jewish law and custom. And Pharisee literally means separated ones. And so it was with Paul. He was a, a Pharisee of Pharisees. The kind of Pharisee, in fact, who was zealous. A persecutor of the church. All his life's energy when the Christians came on the scene. All his endeavors was to eliminate these, these false believers, these Christians. He used force and he used terror on all those who opposed God's law. He hated Christ. That's how zealous he was. That's how much he could you know, prop himself up. I am all of these things. I am circumcised on the eighth day. I am of the people of Israel. I am of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrew. I live out my culture. I'm a Pharisee with advanced training, high esteem, and I hate Christ. I'm going to kill his people. That's the kind of zeal that he had. That was the depth of his zeal. So Paul concludes this spiritual biography, his spiritual accounting ledger, by claiming he was, at last, blameless. You think that, you think you have reason to take pride in the flesh? I have more so. I was blameless. No one can make a charge against me. No accusation can be made. In terms of meticulously keeping the law, Paul obeyed and he kept the law to his pharisaical understanding blamelessly. And not only the law, but of course the Pharisees, as you know, added to the law through their oral tradition. As if any man could keep the law, but now he's keeping thousands more. This is really a summary of how Paul interpreted, as a, as a, as a pre-Christian, how Paul would have interpreted his birthright and his accomplishments, his bloodline and his works. 
his DNA and his obedience. This self-deception and this pride is staggering. But this is exactly what these false believers are saying, aren't they? By saying somehow they can claim, they can merit by their works salvation. Can you imagine that even Paul, just imagine for a minute that Paul, when he was Saul, when he really thought in this way, that he had any shadow of the joy that we see written in this letter? You think, you think Saul was a joyous man? Have you ever met a legalist? Don't, don't look at your neighbor. I don't mean like a mature believer. I don't mean that. A mature believer who, who casts aside pop culture and is seen as a little stuffy. He doesn't join in filthy, rude humor. I don't mean that kind of person. That's not a legalist. I mean someone who follows a rigid set of rules that he created, that he added to the Word. And then he takes those rules and he tries to apply it to himself and then he applies them to you and makes your conscience follow those rules. You ever met somebody like that? Paul had a long list of birthright privileges. He had a long list of fleshly accomplishments. And he entered those into his accounting book. He puts his confidence in the flesh. So church, where, where is your confidence placed? Is your confidence in your own obedience? Or, or think about it more positively. Is your confidence in the fact that you've been growing and maturing a good thing, but that could be twisted into something that's not quite what Scripture teaches about how our obedience follows Christ's work on the cross for us? Is your confidence in your parenting? Is your confidence in your middle-class Protestant work ethic? Or is your confidence in Christ alone? We should all pursue Christian maturity. right? We should all seek to improve our Christian parenting. We should be diligent about our work, the hard work we do. We should have a Protestant work ethic. But we should not provide we should not find our identity i should say or our confidence in our upbringing we should be grateful for our upbringing that's different we should not put our confidence in our upbringing our birthright or our accomplishments our confidence is in christ alone i was expecting an amen there but that's I'm in my heart, I'm saying amen, because confidence is in Christ. Ultimately, here, Paul's making a case between trusting in Christ and trusting in self. Isn't he? His adversaries were dogs and evildoers and mutilators, and they trusted in themselves. But here's what Paul says. Paul says, but whatever I gained, whatever gain I had, Whatever was once in this column, all of those things, my DNA and my, my works, I count loss for the sake of Christ. 
So Paul is, is something of an accountant here. He's using accounting terms. It's like he has two columns, profit column and a loss column. In the loss column, which he, which he believed at one time was his profit column, he has DNA, parents' faithfulness, his own accomplishments. That pretty much sums it up. There's nothing you can add to that. That's everything. What you did while you were in the womb and what you did after you were in the womb. That's, that's it. Paul puts that now in the loss column. And then in the prophet column, which, again, he once believed was wicked and must be eradicated, he's putting Christ. So there's a lost column and there's a prophet column. There's only one thing in that prophet column. And that's Christ. Paul's verdict in verse 7 and following, as we work through this next week, and of course this was Jesus' verdict, was any deposit save Christ alone, comes back to the bank with a notice of insufficient funds. All that was once placed in the profit column is now loss. And more than loss, they are dung. That's the word rubbish. Again, Paul doesn't mince words. And let's get real clear about those filthy rags that the Bible talks about. They're wiped and dung. Even the Pharisee of Pharisees, even Paul, his righteousness that he thought was blameless is but dung before a holy God. So all the pluses and profits are now lost. And in fact, they never really were pluses and profits. I think that's his point. As well, they were dumb. So we hear Christ spoken of as the as the great physician, and indeed he is. But he's also the great accountant. It is not by the position our parents put us in. It is not by the position that we put ourselves in. It is only by the position that God puts us in. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter two. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. The contrast Paul makes between the righteousness of the Judaizers and the righteousness of, of Christ is really what we need to consider. And we will next week. Here is, he's saying one is a saving righteousness and one is a damning righteousness. One is God's righteousness and one is man's righteousness. One is an imputed righteousness and one comes from man's heart. One is grace and one is law. One is based on God's work and one is based on our work. And so Christian, we have the honor of being called Christian because the Almighty Judge of the universe pronounces us not guilty and credits us the righteousness of His Son. He does the transaction. He places Christ's righteousness in the right column on our behalf on the basis of faith alone. And that faith is holy and entirely a gift from God. And this judicial declaration, this justification 
is a judicial verdict that we belong to the perfect and holy God for eternity. And he slams the gavel down. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's a gift of God. So next Sunday morning, Lord willing, we will return and finish chapter 3. And we'll learn more about Christ's righteousness imputed to believers. And also knowing Christ more and more by pressing on toward the goal in order to win the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. A high calling and a wonderful prize. Let's pray.